0: Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations Across America. Hello, and welcome and to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am your host. And I am in sunny New York City. I am joined today by Corey Shockey, who is, as ever,
1: in <laughs> a better place than I am. Uh, True today.
0: Where are you, Corey?
1: I am in La Jolla, California, sprawling around the beach.
0: That's really, really nice. But that's what you should be doing. It's August, although you're there for a conference. You're really there to work, right?
1: Yes, it counts as work. That's true. But lots of sunshine, lots of good Mexican food. So I am one contented little mammal.
0: Wow, wow, that's that's pretty nice. Well, I know a less contented mammal could not be found than Ed Luce. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> You You think I'm a mammal? <laughs>
0: <laughs> ours, that's what we've speculated I'm actually a fish for God's sake Where it? <laughs> well there's that whole cold-blooded English thing but you've just returned from England have you not
2: I, I have indeed um, got back two or three days ago and um, enjoying, enjoying um, the swamp
0: well with neither of you there it's going unwatched and I would have to say based on the news um, it could use some adult supervision <laughs>
2: Yes. Um, uh, I have to say I'm really, really very frightened about um, the next few weeks in British politics. The way I think it's going to go as devised by Boris Johnson's advisor stroke evil genius, a man called Dominic Cummings, is that there will be a vote of confidence in Boris Johnson's government, which he will lose if he had any um, paid any heed to convention to British political practice or history he would then resign but he won't resign what he will do instead is call an election for november the first the day after no deal brexit halloween um, and the only person standing between him and that scenario would be the queen um, who would have the prerogative to say no a new government must be formed before an election can be called um, but Knowing what I know about the Queen of England, she, every fiber of her body would say, do not inject yourself into any political partisan situation. Um, and so I believe, that, I believe that that Dominic Cummings, evil genius or um, evil idiot scenario is actually a very likely one.
0: Well, Corey, you know, this is, is, is a very interesting situation because of course, Ed understands England, and he understands the Queen, but if there was ever a situation in which the Queen ought to inject herself because of her unique role and because of the one thing she is supposed to be responsible for, it would be this one, wouldn't it? I mean, if if this thing happens the way Ed just described, it could be the undoing of her kingdom.
1: Yes, that's certainly true um, but we haven't heard anything out of Buckingham Palace uh, as Parliament challenged the authority of the government over the course of the last year entirely justifiably in my view but I am skeptical that she will actually play the role that, uh, that Ed suggests I, I agree with Ed's assessment I think that this is this is a really scary time in British politics, and uh, the, the prospect of not just political damage in the moment occurring, but systemic damage is extraordinarily high. Um, they, the parliamentary systems don't have the kinds of checks and balances on a government in power that a presidential system or that our presidential system has. Wait, just, wait just one minute there
0: before you go on with that one. But the way that we're supposed to.
1: I see you the argument. Uh, we at least have the means to do it. Whether or not we are doing it is a different question. But but yeah, I do think uh, to that Britain is on a toboggan ride to Gomorrah, politically speaking, at the moment.
0: So, and... Is it really possible, I'm just, you know, taking in what you've said, but is it really possible that Boris Johnson would be so cynical as to not form a new government and to punt a decision on the election until the day after Brexit?
2: Entirely. I mean, uh, there is no limit to Boris Johnson's cynicism. You know, the... Only alternative scenario, which in normal political times would um, naturally present itself, would would be that if his government lost a vote of no confidence, uh, there then a prescribed 14 days for an alternative government to form before the election is called. Um, And ordinarily, there would be a Labour prime minister um, who would get the backing of other parties, um, and form a temporary government on the explicit basis of stopping a no-deal Brexit. And that government would have one role and one role only, which is to request an extension, uh, a stay of execution for another two, three months until the British election were out of the way, so that no-deal Brexit did not happen. But unfortunately, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, has essentially shut down that option by saying the only alternative government he would agree to form would be one in which he was prime minister. And, you know, the other parties, the Liberal Democrats, the Scottish Nationalists, etc., they know exactly who Jeremy Corbyn is. Um, They know the thugs around him. They know that uh, for him, Brexit is an alternative fantasy scenario where he can essentially be the vanguard of the proletariat, and seize the reins of power and impose socialism in one country. And so he has essentially precluded that option by insisting he must spearhead it. Um, If he cared about a Britain um, um, avoiding a no-deal Brexit, he would say, we'll support whoever can command consensus for uh, the ability to form a temporary government that requests an extension of Article 50." until after a British election has been held, but that's not going to happen. And uh, if it were going to happen, I wouldn't be feeling so pessimistic. I wouldn't be joining Cory on that toboggan ride to, to Gomorrah, um, but unfortunately I don't see too many byways or laybys on that toboggan ride um, from, from where we're sitting now. And there's something really unexpected happened, such as the Queen sticking her head above the parapet for the first time in her career um, and uh, making a decision that would polarize the monarchy.
0: Wow. Um, well, uh, let's take that all in. But, but let's you know, continue our move around the world without revealing any secrets of your life there, Corey. I heard in the <laughs> prior conversation that you're about to tend a conversation about China. And as of yesterday, protesters in Hong Kong airport stopped all flights from leave. Uh Police were um, firing uh, rubber bullets into the crowd in uh, Hong Kong subway station. Troops were massed on the border um, outside Hong Kong uh, in Shenzhen.
1: So the first thing the president should be doing is uh, praising the people of Hong Kong for attempting to peacefully wrest from their government the authority for decisions. The second thing he should be doing is uh, cautioning the government of China that the kind of crackdown they appear to be presaging for Hong Kong will, uh, will damage everybody else's view of China and its belief and its commitment to the treaty that it signed with Great Britain that returned Hong Kong to Chinese uh, sovereignty under a 50-year agreement of preserving Hong Kong's existing rules. And the third thing the president should be doing is threatening the government of Hong Kong and its police force that uh, we live in a day in an age of accountability, and the, not just the president, but the Congress of the United States, the people of the United States, and the businesses of the United States can't possibly continue to invest in China and treat China as a potential partner or even as a competitor if they are going to act like an enemy of their own people and of the liberties that we consider universal.
0: Wow. It's been so long since we've had a president. Um uh I you, and you sound so presidential. Right, Ed? She sounds very presidential.
2: I'd vote for
1: her. I thank you for that vote of confidence. By
0: the yes, way, yes, no, no, we will both <laughs> we both vote for you and I'm willing to go door to door canvassing for you. Um but but, <laughs> but 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 Ed, as we as we look at this situation, that's not what's gonna happen. The Chinese know they have a free pass. And this is relevant In China with regard to Hong Kong it's also relevant in China with regard to if I don't know if you saw it but a couple of days ago Nick Kristoff had a very good article in um, uh, the New York Times talking about the Chinese um, ongoing abuses towards the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province where something like 3 million people uh, have been rounded up or are in detention or being abused by the Chinese government, and in which the article characterized it as the worst um, religious-based abuse of people on the planet since the Holocaust. Uh, and you know, I, the message goes beyond China to other countries that see this kind of free pass. But do you do do, uh, do you know? Speaking of toboggan rides to Gomorrah. You see a, a president standing on the sidelines, as ours is doing, uh, off, you know, presenting uh, or putting us in a position um, where no moral leadership produces a slippery slope and 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 catastrophes on fronts like this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I no no doubt whatsoever that Trump, you know, has been enabling and giving the green light to all kinds of abuses um, around the world. And the situation in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, who, um, I believe, are studying at community college, um, according to the Chinese, um, um, but are rounded up in detention centers, according to human rights groups. The situation in Xinjiang is a good example of the kind of thing that this president really doesn't care about. Um, uh, And that that's that's a, you know a partly a consequence of Trumpism. Um, what what I think um, the Chinese are going to be weighing in Hong Kong is not so much you know whether an American president approves or disapproves of this. But what it would do to Chinese growth if the PLA were actually to go into Hong Kong and um, open fire on these protesters, um, a sort of Tiananmen rerun. Um, I think would be catastrophic for China's growth, for investment in China, um, and would also be catastrophic in terms of Taiwan, the political impact on Taiwan, which has got a presidential election in January in which there's going to be a choice between, you know, the, the standard Kuomintang candidate who's pro-China and One China. And um, the current president, who, Shia uh, Ying Wang, who's very much, you know, for Taiwanese independence, although she's not yet running on that. I think if, you know, you get bloodshed in Hong Kong at the hands of the PLA, she will be running on that. And um, so the, in addition to the economic meltdown you would get um, if, uh, if, if there was bloodshed on the streets of Hong Kong, um, you would also get a massive political and geopolitical crisis engendered by this. And one would hope, I have no insights into Xi Jinping's um, thinking um, on this, but one would hope that he would have thought a couple of steps ahead um, and realized that some loss of faith, some loss of pride in Hong Kong is a much lower price to pay than um the extremely steep price that would result from the PLA being 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 used with live shooting on the streets of Hong Kong. But that's not a prediction. That's just how I would weigh the options. And and uh, I've got no confidence that's how Xi Jinping is weighing the options.
0: Well let me let me sort of pose the same kind of question to you, Corey, but instead of making a president right now Um, I I will make you the president or you can be an advisor to the president who comes in in January of 2021 after we've had a period of um, no U.S. position on on effectively any issue of human rights other than, you know, an unconstructive one, as we saw in 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 the case of Saudi Arabia, for example, um, what does the new president do? How do you reassert um, not just moral leadership, but a policy that might actually be effective in this regard? Uh, or is that just not a realistic expectation?
1: No, I do think it's a realistic expectation, and it's the kind of natural posture of American foreign policy. Tom Wright, in his most recent book on U.S. foreign policy, emphasized that something that I had never thought of, which is that... There's no sense pretending that values don't drench Americans' foreign policy because even if in the near term, an American government, as the Trump administration is, attempts to uh, avoid human rights and universal values, that nobody's ever gonna believe that of the United States, right, the government of China it, and the government of Russia and the government of Iran are, and the government of North Korea are all right to believe that Americans yearn for regime change in their countries because we hold these truths to be self-evident, that people have inherent rights and that they loan them to governments in limited ways. And all four of the governments just mentioned would not be in power if their own people had the opportunity to to create accountable governments. So what do we do about it in January uh, 2021? I think uh, moving gently is is better policy than moving radically. And I also, but I think the argument that, that would build maximum American support is to emphasize that, you know, the United States shapes the international order by, creating rules by using soft power, by using the power of our attraction and our example. And we need to return to doing that. And let's start by celebrating people brave enough to stand up to repressive governments and brave enough to use peaceful protest, not violence. And that governments are likeliest to retain the consent and the conformity of their public if they don't use violence against them.
0: Yeah, I can't help but observe that, you know, one way we could do that is actually letting asylum seekers into the United States and not penalizing uh, immigrants who come here legally, as the government has attempted to start to do. Um, Absolutely uh, true. um, But, you know, Ed, uh, as we sort of continue on this journey through the world today, which often gets obscured by headlines here in the United States, Um, did, uh, did another area that is, you know, red alert, uh, is one that you've been, you know, early to call attention to, uh, but still has received essentially no attention in the United States. Uh, and that is the current state of, um, tension between India and Pakistan. Over the changed status of Kashmir, much of which flowed from some ill-considered statements of the President of the United States, but a lot of which uh, has flowed from history, and that this is one of the most um, uh, neuralgic points of, you know, contention on the globe. Uh, and in the past few days, that situation has gotten worse with redeployment of Pakistani fighter jets, with changes in policy by the Pakistani and Indian government. Uh, And of course, Pakistan is an ally of China, and India is a rival of China. And if America sits on the sidelines on this one, uh, that has consequences uh, in the geopolitical sense as well. And so I'm wondering, what's the state of play? And what do you think a constructive U.S. or international response to this would be?
2: Well, on the latter, you know, the constructive thing would be to go back in time and unsay what Trump said to Imran Khan, Pakistan's prime minister, when he visited uh, last month, Washington last month, where he offered to mediate the dispute between India and Pakistan on Kashmir. And that sort of deeply offended Narendra Modi and all Indians, in fact, because they Ah, see it as an internal matter, and third-party mediation is rejected as a matter of sort of almost Indian diplomatic theology. So that was just bad briefing, idiotic statement from Trump, which I believe accelerated this decision last week by Narendra Modi to suspend, well, to revoke Kashmir's autonomy as a special state written into India's constitution, and to revoke that special status for Kashmir. Um, unilaterally, without paying heed to India's constitution. Quite extraordinary. He just did it. Um, And he arrested every elected political leader in the state, put them under house arrest, suspended the media there, sent in tens of thousands more troops, 8,000 on the day of the announcement, but something like 30,000 in the previous day. Um, uh, There are now um, under... Uh, in uniform, with weapons, um, something like half a million Indian military personnel in uh, the Valley of Kashmir, which has a population of 8 million. Half a million to 8 million. That's an armed person for every 16 people. Um, Must be one of the most heavily militarized portions of the world. Um, Because the people of Kashmir are not accepting this. Um, It's the only Muslim majority state in India. No other state has had its rights stripped from it like this. Mm -hmm. Narendra Modi is a Hindu nationalist um, who does not believe in um, India's secular constitution. And he is ripping it up before our eyes. So my first concern here is not the geopolitical implications, which are very real, um, but it's the future of Indian democracy, in particular, the liberal secular element of it. It's the largest democracy in the world. It exists because it's secular. There's no other way that India would be India, a democratic country, with its 18 official languages, every religion under the sun, um, a caste system, and so forth, unless it were liberal, secular, and tolerant. And we have a, um, a anti-secular, intolerant, Hindu majoritarian prime minister before our eyes steamrolling that. That is my first concern. My second is that the larger context, you know, the U.S. is pulling out of Afghanistan. The, the Taliban essentially are being handed a victory on a platter. Um, the Pakistan sponsorship of the Taliban, the Haqqani network, etc., is going to be less necessary. The jihadis are going to be turning their attention back to Kashmir. And Imran Khan, a very tenuous grip on power, is going to want to ingratiate himself with that the jihadis and their sponsors, the Pakistan military, who are his sponsor, too. And he's going to divert that energy back into Kashmir. Um, and we're going to get a very, very combustible situation in Kashmir, which is the main flashpoint between, you know, as the cliche goes, it's a true cliche. Originally, Bill Clinton's the most dangerous nuclear flashpoint in the world, Kashmir, um, I would like to see an American president, you know, attempt to defuse this. I don't think Trump has the ability or the inclination to do either. He's much more likely to throw kerosene onto this particular fire. And it, it's something we've really got to pay a lot of attention to. It's a very troubling situation.
0: You know, it, it, it strikes me, Corey, in listening to Ed describe this in in. in both knowledgeable and and very worrisome terms, um, that we remember once again that most U.S. foreign policy on most issues for most of the past 75 years, uh, there has at least been an effort to conduct it on a bipartisan basis. And on issues like the ones we're discussing here, there could be a little bit of a difference in how you have a trade policy with China or whether you embrace Modi vigorously or not so vigorously or or so forth, but that that, that the U.S. interests are so clear that there is no real issue of partisanship involved. Am am I incorrect in that, in in your view?
1: You are not incorrect in that. Uh, It's, you know, that, again, going to American soft power, most of how we run the international order is on... Being a pest to people, right? Sending the, sending the Secretary of State there to explain just what they're getting themselves into, and to have a public conversation that forces accountability for uh, leaders that are acting recklessly by saying, "Wow, here are some of the potential consequences of this." The United States would look with a very unhappy eye on this happening, and. I can't tell you that we could restrain the Congress if you proceed to do something so dangerous to our interests and we believe to your interests. But the Trump administration isn't doing any of that. I mean, the only example I can think of is Mike Pompeo's um, conversation with the Japanese and South Koreans. But again, we should have prevented that from happening, we should have been a lot more visible, we should have been a lot more public in how we had that conversation, and we should be imposing uh, costs on Friends of the United States that are doing things that are gonna make wars more likely, that we will get dragged into, uh, or we'll end up with an international order much more chaotic and violent than the one that we have now. So, I'm sorry, that's a very long way of saying David, you are exactly
0: right. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I have to say, yeah. And why didn't you lead with that? But on, on the other hand, um, you know, there's an easy way for these countries to get around this, and the, with the current administration, and that all they have to do is write a nice note to the president and say a few flattering things, and he'll give them a pass. <laughs> you know, Good I mean, that's, you know, which is yeah. what he seems to be Did doing. You- Yeah, go on. Did
1: you see the stories about the notes to Justin Trudeau?
0: Because
1: that's the craziest one of late, I think.
0: Explain to our listeners what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, so the president fired off a couple of, uh, you know, he uses a pen the size of a horse's leg and writes in really thick, as you can see from his signature on executive orders, and he sent a couple of those notes to the Prime Minister of Canada, suggesting uh, or complaining about the trade balance between the U.S. and Canada. And maybe the reason the president hates Justin Trudeau so much is that Uh, Justin Trudeau politely responded by sending the president (laughs) the U.S. trade representatives' figures showing that actually the U.S. has a positive trade balance with Canada. Uh, And since this is a president that doesn't actually like data, that he has firmly held beliefs, most of which are untrue or at least 45 years out of date, um, Justin Trudeau pointing out the facts of the case I am sure enraged the president. Yeah.
0: It's 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 a little worse than that because you know, and and one, one of the things that he sent using a not just a sharpie that as you described, but a silver sharpie, he saw a cover of Time <laughs> magazine or some magazine <laughs> that was a picture of Justin Trudeau, and it said the anti-Trump question mark or something. <laughs> and then he wrote, you know, I saw this. I hope this is not true, but of course. Anti-Trump doesn't mean he's <laughs> against Trump. It means he's the opposite of Trump. But Trump, you know, is completely in the dark on this. As on so many other things. You know, Ed, I, you were in England. Were you picking up the paper each morning to see whether a cloud of Russian radioactive dust was heading your way? Uh, since our, our Russian friends seem to be up to their old um, mishandling of, of of nuclear material.
2: Well if I was relying on um the morning newspaper to give me a warning um, uh you know of radiation, which sometimes beats the press, then I would probably fully deserve to be irradiated on the spot so i was I was nervously checking my um twitter uh, Geigerometer um, <laughs> but no I, I you know I don't know enough about that accident um, uh, you know i do I do know it's described as a mini Chernobyl. Um, and that there are sort of strategic weaknesses that have been revealed by this. But I don't know enough about that to give you a, a proper answer, um, except that I do still pick up a morning newspaper.
0: Well, it's, it's, that's charming, and, and I'm not sure exactly why you do that, but I assume it's because you have fish to be wrapped. Um, yeah, having... exactly. There's chips. There's Ch- chip. Card. Exactly. Um, But, you know, Corey, one of the things that strikes me about this is, you know, part of this story turns on the development of a nuclear-powered Russian missile, which our friend David Sanger, off in Vermont or wherever he is, has been writing about. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no really reason for the Russians to have nuclear-powered missiles unless they're targeting us. Um, And... Right? I mean, unless they're targeted. Yes. Still, okay.
1: <laughs> it is true that the Russians have been developing uh, nuclear-armed missiles in violation of their commitments in the INF Treaty, which was what precipitated the Trump administration's withdrawal. And for people like me who favored the U.S. remaining in the treaty, the challenge is to suggest how it is we would bring the Russians back into compliance. And nobody's found a way to do that yet.
0: Uh, Yeah, well, we're not really even trying to do that yet. Uh, We tend to have a policy in this administration of exiting deals before we start thinking about what to do after the deal, as we have seen in the case of
1: Iran. You're so sweet and naive (laughs) that you think that actually once they've withdrawn from the deal, that they will then do that thinking, as opposed to just withdraw from the deal and not think about it at all. I'm touched by how optimistic you are, my friend.
0: Yeah, well, that's it. You know, I'm just, you know, here in New York City, a bastion of optimism. And, you know, I've lived (laughs) in Washington for 25 years. What could make you uh, uh, more optimistic than that? Um, And, you know, I I think one thing you got wrong, Ed, was you referred to Kashmir as the most you know, heavily armed territory in the world because there was one armed person for every sixteen people. And while that may be true for the most of the world, it certainly doesn't take into consideration every city, town, and suburb in the United States.
2: Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, if you if you add up all the privately held and whatever, it is three hundred billion. Privately held arms. It's it's closer
0: to four hundred million, but yes,
2: closer to four hundred million, which I believe is uh, uh, most of which are owned by five percent of the population.
0: Fifty percent of the weapons in the United States are actually owned by three percent of the population.
2: Okay. So that's even worse. Um, and, you know, taking a wild demographic guess, I- I'm assuming most of them are not Latina females um, or um, elderly Muslim men.
0: Well, as um, you mentioned that, I just pointed out, and I've we, mentioned this, but I think, prior, but there was a nice article in Scientific American uh, last year, which pointed out that the vast majority of that group were n- white males, but not just white males. It's white males who harbor racial fears. Yeah.
2: Um, it's terrifying. I mean, I think, I think I mentioned to you earlier in my sort of existential um, uh, gloom about um, Britain's toboggan ride, um, uh, the one sort of piece of silver lining that I found was at least Britain isn't constitutionally armed. You know, the, the absence of guns is just one nice sort of point to emphasize. And it, it really, really worries me. Um, just, you know, how few of those 3% who own whatever it is, 200 million guns, the armories in people's homes. I mean, the, I've got a friend who's, uh, in Eastern Ohio, um, who's got something like 55 different weapons of every possible description in his basement, holds very sort of nativist views, consumes a media that tells him we're being invaded, you know, is on these websites that... Um, you know, are, are sort of endless, bottomless pits because they link to one another and they go on and on and on. There's a whole self-reinforcing worldview there. Um, the people who are constitutionally armed um, with small armories, with enough in their basements, you know, for a whole town to defend itself, um, are capable of using, and a president who's greenlighting them. Um, you know, we're the second anniversary of Charlottesville. Um, at the moment, this week, and, um, and the president hasn't changed his act. Uh, and it's, de- it's deeply worrying. I have nothing really original to say on this, except that I find it terrifying.
0: Well, you know, you're, you're exactly right, Ed. That is depressing. Um, uh, and of course, for a lot of us in the United States, um, it has occupied a lot of our attention, and rightly so. Uh, although unfortunately, not enough of that attention has actually been focused on taking the real and immediate steps we need to remedy this grievous drug, uh, gun problem we have in the United States. Or for that matter, the problem of, of, of white supremacists, which uh, uh, goes hand in hand with it. Um, but we can't let ourselves be distracted. And one of the things we're trying to do on Deep State Radio. As we're trying to say, yes, these are important issues. Yes, the campaign is an important issue. Yes, Trump is um, uh, you know, a horrible president and a bad person. But around the world right now, in North Korea, in China with regard to Hong Kong, in Xinjiang province, in Russia where they're testing weapons, with Russia where we're eliminating key nuclear treaties... In Iran, where we've eliminated a nuclear treaty and where tensions are growing in the Persian Gulf. Um, In in Europe, where Brexit is looming and where Europe is weakening and where the United States is contributing to that. In Brazil, where the rainforest is being torn apart, uh, irreparably damaged. In the Arctic, where fires burn. In Greenland, where ice melts. Around the world right now, there are crisis after crisis after crisis, and in every case, as we said last week, the U.S. has exacerbated this. But one of the things that we have to do in order to address those things is send a message to political leaders in whatever country we're living in that they are priorities, that they can't slip by, because each one of these things has the possibility of spinning into global-level crisis with implications for countries everywhere. And that's why we'll keep covering them here at Deep State Radio. And if you go to the dsrnetwork.com, you can find how we're covering it on the podcast, or you can listen to our other podcasts on National uh, Security Magazine this week. We've got a really, really interesting uh, uh, discussion, precisely uh, this set of issues. Um, We have DSR live coming on Thursday. We have unredacted. We have a whole host of things for you uh, in new written content. So go to the DSR network, join up, become a member, Uh, come back later in the week, come back next week, take some time out or enjoy this as Corey was on the beach in the summertime. Uh, And we'll see you again very soon. Thank you very much. Bye bye.